Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. On March 11, 1944, thick black smoke billowed into the sky over the two-and-a-half-story townhouse that stood at 21 Rue Le Sur, in Paris's fashionable 16th arrondissement. Few, if any, of the neighbors knew who owned the residence, but after five straight days of the noxious-smelling smoke lingering over the neighborhood, most of the people who lived around there had had enough. Despite it being unseasonably warm for March, most of the neighbors were forced to keep their windows shut. But even that didn't prevent the smoke from seeping in and soiling their furniture. Several people described the smell as something like burnt caramel, burnt tar, or even the smell of charred meat. Some of the neighbors had glimpsed the man they all presumed to be the owner of 21 Rue Sur, although hardly anyone knew his name or anything about him only that he'd been observed riding a green bicycle and towing a cart whose contents were concealed under a heavy canvas up to one of the doors. On a few occasions, he'd been seen receiving visitors, who showed up late at night lugging many heavy suitcases. When one of the neighbors finally worked up the nerve to head over to 21 Rue Sur to complain about the smoke, he realized there was no one home. The shutters were all closed, and no one answered the doorbell. Attached to the front door was a weather-worn note that said, Away for a month. Forward mail to 18 Rue des Lombards, Auxerre. Worried that the idiot had left a fire burning in his chimney before going away for a month, the neighbor called the police. A police officer arrived and found the place locked up tight. The officer asked around and learned the owner of the property was a family physician named Marcel Petio, who had a second home elsewhere in the city in a bustling neighborhood near Gare Saint-Lazare, just south of one of Paris's seedier districts. One of the neighbors had a phone number for the doctor. The officer phoned the number and a woman answered who put the doctor on the line. The doctor asked the police officer if he had entered the building yet. The officer responded that he had not. Dr. Petio told him to stand by and he would rush over with the keys to let him in. It would be no more than 15 minutes at most. But time stretched on, and a half hour later the police officer decided he couldn't wait anymore. So he phoned the fire department. Firemen arrived on the scene, and used a ladder to climb up to a second-story window that they smashed in to gain entry to the building. The stench was even worse inside. Three firemen moved through the darkened hallways by flashlight to a small room in the basement, Inside, one of two coal stoves roared with flames. The smell down there was practically unbearable and caused them all to gag. Then one of the firemen opened the door to the stove. Something fell out of the stove that caused them all to jump back. 
It was the charred remains of a human hand. One of the firemen cried out and swung his flashlight beam around the room. That's when they realized that a pile of debris on the far staircase contained even more human remains. They could see a human skull, a rib cage, and several arms, legs, and other body parts. The horrified fire chief shouted at his men to get the hell out of there. As they ran outside, one of the younger men stumbled over an iron banister and vomited. By now, a large crowd had gathered outside the townhouse to watch the spectacle unfold. The three firemen emerged from the building to inform the police of what waited for them inside. Among the people who showed up in the crowd was a slim, dark-haired man pushing a green bicycle through the crowd. He was pale-skinned and clean-shaven. He wore a fedora pulled down over his face and a dark gray overcoat that was much too warm for the weather. The man pushed his way to the front of the crowd where he found the fire chief and demanded to speak to the policeman in charge. The detectives hadn't yet arrived, so they pointed him to the patrolman who had first arrived on the scene. The man with the green bicycle told him that he was the brother of the man who owned the building, and that his brother was a key member of the French resistance, and that he needed to be allowed to enter the building in order to destroy some confidential files that could greatly harm the resistance if the Gestapo got their hands on them. The patrolman was a good Frenchman, and he despised the Nazis who now occupied his beloved city. But there was no way he was going to let this stranger enter the building and destroy evidence. But, being a good Frenchman, and being very sympathetic with the resistance's cause, he allowed the man to leave the scene before investigators got there. Later, when the patrolman was shown a photo of the doctor who owned the building, he realized he had made a dreadful mistake. For it had not been the doctor's brother, as the man professed, but the doctor himself that he allowed to grow free. That person was Dr. Marcel Petiot, a man who would soon come to be known by many names in the French press, the werewolf, the butcher of Paris, and Dr. Satan, among others. No matter what they called him, there still remained one undeniable fact about the man. He was one of the most prolific serial killers in French history, getting away with murder in the heart of Nazi-occupied Paris. I'm Nate Hale, and I wish I could have a cool nickname like Dr. Satan. And this is The Conspirators. The McDonald Triad is a set of three factors that can be seen as early warning signs in children regarding their potential to grow up and become violent criminals particularly in repeated serial crimes. Those three factors are cruelty to animals, an obsession with setting fires, and persistent bedwetting. The triad was first proposed by a psychiatrist named J.M. McDonald in a paper he published in 1963, and was later adopted by FBI agents John Douglas and Robert K. Ressler, along with Dr. Ann Burgess, who helped create the Bureau's famed Behavioral Sciences Division. In the case of the Butcher of Paris, all three of these behaviors were observed in Marcel Petiot when he was young. But that was long before Dr. MacDonald ever wrote his paper on these behaviors. And although many people over the years became aware of Marcel Petiot's odd behavior, no one appeared to know just what to do about it. Petiot was born on January 17, 1897 in Auxerre, France, an old medieval town about 100 miles southeast of Paris. 
His parents both worked at the town postal and telegraph office before his mother quit after he was born. Petio was the older of two children, with his brother Maurice being born nearly 10 years later in 1906. In 1912, the boy's mother died from complications following surgery. After that, their mother's sister, Henriette Bourdon Gaston, raised them. Although some stories claim that she had been raising them for much longer than that because of chronic negligence from their father. From very early on, neighbors would often share tales of young Marcel Petio's sadism. Everything from plucking the wings off insects to poking out the eyes of baby birds he snatched from their nests. One story claims he dunked the paws of his aunt's favorite cat into a pot of scalding water just to see what would happen. When the horrified aunt tried to teach the boy a lesson by forcing him to sleep with and care for the injured animal, she awoke the following morning to find that young Marcel had smothered it to death. From an early age, Marcel Petio was considered to be highly intelligent, devouring every book he could get his hands on. Although his choice of literature would raise some eyebrows as well. Some of his favorite books were about famous crimes and criminology, particularly stories about notorious murderers like Jack the Ripper and Henri Landreau. He was easily bored in the classroom, and on one occasion he was disciplined for bringing pornography with him to his elementary school. He later got into trouble for attempting to coerce a fellow student into performing sexual acts with him, then was eventually expelled when he brought a gun with him into the classroom and fired it into the ceiling. It wouldn't be the last time he was expelled from school either. He bounced around from school to school over the years and always managed to get himself into enough trouble to get kicked out. As he grew older, Petio always craved two things, money and attention. At age 17, he was arrested for committing a number of petty thefts with a crude device he built from a fishing rod with adhesive on one end that he used to steal cash and other items he would then use to blackmail people. A psychiatrist diagnosed him as mentally ill in 1914, and in 1915 he finally managed to finish his primary education in a special academy for troubled youths in Paris. In 1916, Marcel Petio volunteered to join the French army during World War I. During one battle, he was both wounded and gassed, and afterwards he began to exhibit symptoms of a complete mental breakdown, where he was soon arrested for stealing wallets, army blankets, morphine, and other supplies. In 1918, he was committed to a psychiatric hospital after being diagnosed with a laundry list of mental illnesses, but was again returned to the front lines in June of that year. Just three weeks later... He managed to get himself discharged from the army when he injured himself by placing his foot next to a metal tube containing a grenade. He left the army while receiving his full military pension. He then entered an accelerated education program for war veterans, allowing him to complete medical school in only eight months. He interned at a mental hospital and would go on to receive his medical degree in December 1921. He moved to the town of villeneuve sur yon where he quickly gained a reputation as one of the finest doctors in town. At the same time, there were also some rumors about him that he might be willing to perform some rather shady medical practices for the right price. He was rumored to supply narcotics to addicts, perform back-alley abortions, and commit a number of thefts. Yet, at the same time, his patients absolutely adored him. He was renowned for his caring bedside manner, and for being an incredible listener. Patients would pour out their hearts to him, telling him all sorts of personal details about themselves. 
1926, Petio began an affair with a young woman named Louise Delaveau. It would have been scandalous at the time for a doctor of his status to have a mistress, so the couple put up a charade where she pretended to be his maid, although it was a pretty open secret about their true relationship. After inviting Louise to move in full-time with him, people who saw her around town noticed how she appeared to be putting on weight. Rumors spread that the young, unmarried woman had become pregnant. It wasn't long after that that Louise vanished without a trace. Neighbors would later recall seeing Petio loading a large trunk into his car. Sometime later, a trunk containing the body of a headless woman was discovered in the river outside town. Although some people speculated that Dr. Petio may have murdered his lover, it was never conclusively proven. Nor did the police ever even investigate this as a possibility. Even today, it's never been conclusively proven that this was indeed the body of Louise Delaveau. That same year, Petio decided to run for town mayor. There was actually one point where Petio stood before a crowd of supporters and told them he had a grave confession to make, and that he had committed a serious crime. There was an audible gasp throughout the crowd before Petio admitted that he was guilty of loving them all too much. The crowd ate it up. Later, Petio actually paid someone to disrupt a political debate with his opponent, and the doctor went on to win by a landslide. In June 1927, Petio married Georgette Leblay, the 23-year-old daughter of a wealthy landowner and butcher. They had a son they named Gerhardt in April 1928. Throughout his time as mayor, the local prefect received numerous complaints about Petio being involved in a number of thefts and other shady financial deals. He was suspended as mayor in August 1931, although he still had many supporters rallying for his reinstatement. In fact, the entire village council resigned in sympathy. Five weeks later, on October 18th, he was elected to the council himself. But Petio just couldn't stay out of trouble. The following year, in 1932, he was accused of stealing electric power from the village, and he lost his council seat. After that, he packed up his family and moved to Paris, where... Using fake credentials, he opened a new medical practice, and the patients began to pour in. Rumors continued to follow him that he was the man to go to if you needed an illegal abortion, or if you were an addict looking to score some heroin. In 1936, he was given an official status with the city that allowed him to write his own death certificates. That same year, he was briefly institutionalized for kleptomania, but was released the following year. While all this was going on, Nazi Germany had grown in both power and ambition and would begin their drive to conquer Europe. Many of Paris's richest and most privileged residents seeing the writing on the wall began fleeing the capital. By May 1940, the Nazis had invaded Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. On June 3rd, the Luftwaffe dropped bombs on the Renault and Citroën factories, and air raid sirens screamed throughout Paris. Within days, the Nazi Wehrmacht pushed their way to the capital, nearly encircling it from the north, east, and west. This caused a final mass exodus from the city. Trains were booked to capacity, and many others left by car, truck, or by foot. Anything to avoid the Nazi war machine. Thousands of refugees clogged the roads out of town while being continually bombed by the Luftwaffe. The oppressive summer heat and threat of starvation were nearly as deadly as the German bombs being dropped. An estimated 6 to 10 million people fled Paris. Within weeks, the city's population plummeted to just around 800,000. On June 9th, the French government fled the capital and headed south to Orleans. 
Nazi officials seized control of the capital and commandeered prime real estate in the elegant western districts of Paris. They set up command inside some of the city's grandest hotels, and soon banners emblazoned with the Nazi swastika were plastered all over the city. On June 22, 1940, the Franco-German armistice was drawn up that divided France into two zones, one under German military occupation and one ostensibly to be left in French sovereignty. This became known as the Vichy government, and soon the former French slogan of liberty, equality, fraternity was replaced by work, family, fatherland. This new French government actively cooperated with the Nazis, enacting strong conservative laws that censored the press, prohibited divorce, and made abortion a capital offense. The Vichy government would personally round up and deport 13,000 Jews to concentration camps. This included 4,000 children the Gestapo hadn't even asked for. Of the thousands of Jews the Vichy government deported, less than 3% survived. Strict curfews were enforced throughout Paris, although some of the city's nightclubs, brothels, and cabarets remained exempt. Just as long as they kept German forces happily supplied with champagne, caviar, and prostitutes. It's believed that thousands of illegitimate pregnancies occurred during the French occupation. In fact, once the Nazis were finally driven from Paris, thousands of women were singled out for being the consorts of German soldiers, many of whom were forcibly branded with swastika tattoos and made to parade naked through the streets past jeering crowds. Right away during the early days of the occupation, the 200,000 Jews remaining in Paris began losing their basic civil rights. Beginning on October 3, 1940, Jews could no longer serve in positions of authority such as government, education, and the military. New rules stripped many Jews of their citizenship and began setting the stage for them to be moved to special camps. By early 1941, Jews could no longer work in banking, real estate, insurance, or hotels. Quotas were instated that said only 2% of the Jewish population could practice the legal and medical professions, although this soon became an outright ban altogether. Jewish shops were Aryanized, which meant they were seized by the state and resold at bargain basement prices to non-Jews. The goal was to remove all Jewish influence from every aspect of the national economy. Within months, the Vichy government and the Nazi Gestapo began rounding up thousands of Jews and loading them into overcrowded third-class passenger cars bound for the extermination camp at Auschwitz. More than 75,000 Jewish men, women, and children were deported from France to Nazi death camps in the East. Only 2,800 of them would return home. All of which set the stage for Marcel Petiot's vicious killing spree in Paris during the war. Initially, after French police investigators arrived on the scene at 21 Rue Le Sur to sift through the human remains they found, it was believed the home might have been used by the Gestapo as a location for them to torture and kill prisoners. The level of butchery and brutality throughout the crime scene certainly pointed in that direction. Considering the Gestapo had offices in a building just around the corner, this didn't seem out of the question either. In fact, a swastika banner was hanging from the building just across the street from 21 Rue Le Sur. This created a dilemma for the French police since they had no authority over German secret police business. In fact, under Nazi control, the crime rate throughout Paris had fallen dramatically, and a series of murders of this magnitude was practically unheard of in those days. But the fact that no Gestapo agents arrived on the scene that day to take over the investigation seemed to indicate they might not be involved after all. A search of the premises led French police to a quicklime pit in the garage that also contained human remains as well as a canvas bag which contained even more human body parts. 
Elsewhere inside Marcel Petio's home, they found dozens of suitcases containing clothing and other assorted property that belonged to the victims. Although at this point, the police were still having a difficult time identifying the bodies. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Dr. Petio, but when police went to his other home, they discovered that Petio had already packed up and fled with his wife and son. The investigation was given to a seasoned detective named George Massou. As police continued to scour the townhouse at 21 Rulusur looking for clues, they found one room that appeared to be set up as a medical examination room. And right next to that, they found another, much smaller triangular room that appeared to have a darker purpose. It had a heavy iron door that could only be opened from the outside. There were also thick iron rings fitted to the wall that suggested they were there to shackle someone to the wall. Directly across from the wall was a peephole, the sort you would typically install in an outer door to see who was there. But this was obviously installed to watch what was happening in the tiny torture chamber. By the following day, the story of the gruesome discovery at 21 Rue Le Sur was the main headline on all the French newspapers. This became a media sensation. Newspapers competed to come up with a catchy nickname for Petio. These included the Butcher of Paris, the Monster of Rue Le Sur, the Demonic Ogre, and my personal favorite, Dr. Satan. A massive manhunt was unleashed looking for the doctor and his wife. The local medical examiner would later tell the police he had gathered together three garbage cans full of human remains, although they were so badly decomposed, they offered few other clues as to their cause of death or their identities. One thing that did catch the medical examiner's eye were several small stab wounds in some of the feet and hands that bore an eerie similarity to those found in a number of human remains that had been dragged out of the River Seine several months earlier. To Dr. Paul, the medical examiner, this was a clear indication that the killer had been someone with medical training since he knew that sometimes medical examiners, rather than laying their scalpels down during an examination of a body, might stab it into the feet or hands to use as a pincushion. Between 1942 and 1943, nine bodies were pulled from the River Seine bearing these same sort of telltale stab wounds. It's believed this was how Dr. Petio would dispose of his victims before he purchased the townhouse at 21 Rue Le Sur. Soon after the police investigation into Dr. Petio began, the Gestapo finally got involved. They sent a telegram to Inspector Massou informing him that they had actually arrested Dr. Petio the year before, under suspicion that he had been a member of the French Resistance. At the time they held him in custody, the Gestapo had no idea that Dr. Petio was a murderer, only that he had information they wanted about the French Resistance. During his time in Nazi custody, Dr. Petio stuck to his cover story, and never spoke a word about any murders. 
He was put through months of rigorous torture and interrogation, but he never broke. It was because of this that many people who knew about him at the time came to think of him as a hero of the French Resistance. The Gestapo released him in January 1944 with plans to monitor him in the future to see if he led them to other members of the Resistance. To Inspector Massou, this began to paint Dr. Petio in a different light. During the Nazi occupation, many French citizens did what they had to do in order to get along, while still others actively collaborated with the Nazis against their fellow Frenchmen. Still others formed an underground resistance movement who worked to subvert the Nazi authorities through sabotage, espionage, and even forming an underground railroad to help people escape from France. After learning this new information about Dr. Petio provided by the Gestapo, Massou began to wonder if he had it all wrong, and if the doctor could actually be a member of the French resistance. A couple days after the manhunt began, an associate of a Jewish businessman named Joachim Gushinov showed up at the Paris police station and told them that Dr. Petio had offered to help his friend escape the city. Petio had told Gushinov that he would vaccinate him, then transport him to Spain, and from there to a port in Africa that would sail him to South America. Gushinov brought with him $1.5 million in cash and diamonds to a prearranged meeting with Petio. Although after that, he was never heard from again. In the days that followed, Massou began to develop a theory that Petio had been running a scam to dupe people into believing he could help them escape to South America, only to rob and murder them instead. As the investigation continued, he began to construct a list of people he believed had gone to Dr. Petio seeking his assistance, only to be never heard from again. Although we'll never know for certain, it's believed Dr. Petio may have been responsible for as many as 60 deaths throughout his criminal career. After the Nazi occupation began, Petio approached a barber named Fourier with ties to the criminal underworld and told him that he was the head of a French resistance cell. He said he had established an elaborate and foolproof escape network for anyone wishing to flee the city, for a price, that is. Within weeks, Fourier had begun providing Petio with a steady stream of anxious escapees who showed up at his doorstep with all their cash and valuables in hand. It was a perfect plan. These were people who would never go to the police, and nobody would ever look for them again either because it was presumed they had fled to South America. It was only after he was arrested by the Gestapo that Petio began to get nervous about what they might find if the Nazis searched his townhouse at 21 Rue Le Sur. After his release from Nazi custody, Petio ordered 900 pounds of quicklime and fired up his furnace. Ironically, it was his desperation to destroy evidence that actually led to his discovery as a serial killer. Petio's wife, Georgette, was located by police first, although she claimed to have no idea of the whereabouts of her husband. Dr. Petio would remain free for another seven months. He had begun living secretly with a friend named George Rodette. Petio let his beard grow and adopted a number of aliases, including that of Henri Valéry, a captain in charge of counterespionage and prisoner interrogations in the French Resistance. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and soon the Germans were defeated in France. There was actually some debate over how soon the Allies would march into Paris since it was considered not strategically necessary by Allied generals such as Dwight Eisenhower. But exiled French General Charles de Gaulle insisted, and soon the French resistance began their own assault. They blew up bridges and roads, cornering the Nazis and making it impossible for them to escape. 
After two months, Allied forces pushed their way into Paris, and finally the city was liberated. The Vichy government was toppled, and the jubilation in the streets of Paris soon devolved into demonstrations of mob justice against anyone seen as collaborating with the Nazis. The French resistance was once again called into action to restore order. They adopted the name the French Forces of the Interior. Among those who volunteered with the FFI was Marcel Petio, using his Henri Valéry identity. Inspector Massou was convinced Petio was still hiding in Paris somewhere. He came up with a plan that involved printing a false news story painting Dr. Petio as a German collaborator. This had the desired effect of infuriating Dr. Petio, who sent off an angry email to a Paris newspaper declaring himself to be a true patriot and would never collaborate with the Germans. Police were able to trace the letter back to the FFI, and from there were given information that led to Petio's arrest. Dr. Petio went on trial on March 19, 1946, facing 135 criminal charges. During his trial, Marcel Petio maintained his innocence, claiming that he had only murdered enemies of France. His story changed a lot, too. He initially said that he had discovered the mass pile of bodies at his residence at 21 Rue Le Sur, but they were as much a surprise to him as they were to anyone. He claimed they had all been German collaborators, and he assumed unknown members of the resistance network had done away with them. During his trial, Petio openly mocked the judge and prosecutor. He eventually admitted to killing 19 of the 27 victims found at his house, but insisted they were all Germans or Nazi collaborators and therefore deserved to die. He even once made a wild claim that he had set up a system involving a button inside the triangular room inside his house, where it contained a tiny hypodermic needle, and that once the curious prisoner pushed it, they unknowingly injected themselves with cyanide. Therefore, he hadn't killed anyone. They had done it to themselves. In truth, Petio was injecting his victims with cyanide when they thought they were getting their vaccinations before their alleged trip to South America. Petio's lawyer tried to paint the accused as a resistance hero, but the judges and jurors weren't impressed. Petio was convicted of 26 counts of murder and sentenced to death. It's curious that today Dr. Marcel Petio isn't as well-known as many other serial killers. In fact, if you look at his crimes, you can see a lot of parallels to that of another much more well-known murderer, Herman Webster Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes. Both men had medical training and both men killed for money. And they both had a sadistic streak a mile long. Both men had their own residences in which they committed their crimes. Holmes had his infamous murder castle with its many hidden rooms and booby traps, while Petio had his townhouse with its built-in torture chamber. In France, the name of Dr. Satan is still fairly well known. Petio's story has inspired a number of French books and movies. There's even a Belgian prog rock band named Universe Zero that wrote a song about him in the 70s called Dr. Satan. But for the most part, the horrors of World War II seem to have obscured the memory of this particular serial murderer. On May 25, 1946, Dr. Marcel Petio was led to the guillotine. Just before his head was lowered onto the chopping block, he told the crowd to look away. This wouldn't be pretty. When the blade finally dropped, the executioner later swore that Dr. Petio's severed head was smiling. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. 
I have a couple new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Zachy and Philip for helping support the show, and thanks to all my other supporters as well. Just a reminder, Patreon supporters get access to all sorts of rewards, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. As always, you can help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. Each of your reviews and ratings helps boost us in Apple's rankings, which in turn helps spread the good word about the show to more people. It's sort of like a pyramid scheme, but a lot less sketchy. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll be back next time.